Okay, greetings, hello, how goes it? This is the Cube LA podcast. I only have one announcement today. I'll be doing an audio only edition where I just do some random topic, 10 minutes or less occasionally. So be on the lookout for that. I mean, other than that, I don't really have that many announcements. It's the end of the year. <laughs> no, I'm here with Dr. Donald Brown. What's happening? What's happening? <laughs> I've been waiting for this one. Oh, man. I was very excited to be here. I've been, I've been waiting for this oh, one. Yeah. All right. So, Dr. Donald Brown, are you ready to get started? Let's do it. All right, so Dr. Donald Brown, I'll be calling you Don from here on out, but I just want to be official for the intro. (laughs) (laughs) You graduated from Xavier University of New Orleans, got your degree in biology. You were pre-med there also. Uh, You graduated from Wayne State University School of Medicine in 2013. You completed your psych residency at the University of Southern California, where I had the pleasure of of meeting Meeting and working with you. And uh, you did your forensics fellowship at the University of Southern California as well. Yep. Okay. Yes, sir. Well, Perfect. that is primarily the main reason I had you come in, although I, I, it is also good to see you as likewise, well. Likewise, likewise. <laughs> <laughs> so let's just dive right into it. What, what attracted you to psychiatry in the first place? So it's a crazy story, actually. Yeah. Um, growing up, I always knew I wanted to be a doctor, like ever since middle school. Um, I was in like medical occupations classes, which basically teaches you about like all types of um, aspects of the medical field, whether it be nursing, doctor, whatever. Um, so I, it was dope. And then in high school, I did a lot of volunteering in local hospitals, basically like passing out waters, working in like cardiology offices, things like that. And I'm like, okay, I can do this. Yeah. And so it comes to college. And then, like I was telling you a little bit off the air, um, I went to school in New Orleans around the time Hurricane Katrina hit. So when I left and came back, um, I did a lot of volunteer work with like uh, community cleanup, working in the Lower Ninth Ward, working in psych hospitals, actually. And it was through that volunteer experience that I changed my trajectory from cardiology, which is what I originally wanted to do, to psychiatry. Because to me, it felt like I could do the most good in psychiatry and it combined what I wanted to do in medicine, kind of to solve problems and to help others. That's basically the main reason I became a doctor. And I felt that psychiatry was the best option to do those things. Yeah, I'm learning so much about you just from this, what, the last 10 minutes? Yeah. Cardiology, really? Cardiology, yeah. That's what I wanted to do all the way to the end of high school. And I did a lot of my um, volunteer work in cardiology wards and just to see what they do on a day-to-day basis. And then undergrad kind of had that experience exposure in psychiatry and my sister is actually a psychiatrist too so she was kind oh. of trying to push me to that path and i'm like no nah, i don't want to do that that's you got it yeah. i want to do cards that's that's me yeah and then in med school i'm like yeah cards is not i don't like that <laughs> at all and then psych i'm just like oh, i'm gonna try it out you know sis says it's cool i liked what i did in undergrad and then i just just match made in heaven like i loved every second of it I have a question for you. When Before you were interested in psychiatry, was psychiatry one of those specialties that you even considered before before medical school or before your volunteer work? So I would say no. Um, only exposures because my sister always wanted to be a psychiatrist or something okay. she knew at an early age. So that's my only exposure. Yeah. Um, prior to that, I mean, there was a big stigma, especially in the black community against like just medicine, let alone psychiatry. It's mm-hmm. just mental illness is really kind of seen as like, not really, I wouldn't say as important, but more like 
pushed to the side. And it's and it's seen as like almost like a personal failure when you have like a mental illness, and then families kind of like push on you for it, like mm. do better. Why are you thinking that way? Like kind of like that type of mindset. Plus, not seeing someone who looked like us in the entertainment industry doing this field, it's like if you don't see it and it's shunned upon, it's like, why go into that? Right. So that's kind of the mindset I had in an early age before I was exposed to it. Once I got exposed to it personally, I'm like, this is dope. And it's needed. Like our communities need this. Right. Like, so that's what I make my personal goal with as far as um, what I do today. And, you know, that was my motivation going into it. Like I really wanted to make a difference, especially in my community because of the past associated with it. So I know why you went to psychiatry. Why did yeah. you choose forensic psychiatry? So I decided during residency, um, it was third year, and I was just considering what I wanted to do in psychiatry because I always knew I wanted to do like either emergency or inpatient. That was like my ultimate goal. Mm -hmm. But then uh, people who were in the forensic fellowships years prior were saying, like Dr. Chamberlain, who we worked with, were saying, you know, it's worth it doing the extra year. Like you learn so much. You get to build upon your practice. This is what I do. I still do emergency psychiatry like he does. And then I do cases on the side. So it's like it's only a supplement and it's one additional year. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, you know, I wasn't really in a rush to kind of finish. So, I, you know, I was considering that as an option. And then once it came time to make the decision, I'm like, oh, might as well do it. I always had um, I love like law and order and saw the forensic psychiatrist and psychologist on that show. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it was cool. So I'm like, oh. Let's try it out. Yeah. And going through the fellowship, absolutely loved it. Like it was a lot of like getting to know yourself a lot and your own bias biases and as well as knowing, knowing the history of mental health and how it's been addressed in our laws and like kind of starting at the beginning. And Dr. Weinberger is an amazing teacher and kind of taught us, like gave us the foundation to build upon to make us like the best psychiatrist, forensic psychiatrist we could be. Mm -hmm. So that was just an amazing year that we went through. Myself, Dr. Chen, and Dr. Rodriguez, all three of us. You know, one thing that I've been learning as a uh, as a new podcast host, sometimes I put the cart before the horse. Yeah. Right. Because we know we know what forensic psychiatry is. Yes. Right. We know what it is. I should I should make the audience aware for anyone that's a, that's not a doctor that's listening. There are different branches of psychiatry. I think from uh from from time to time we 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 lump all psychiatrists into into one type or they do the same thing and we don't. There's mm -hmm. forensic psychiatrists, there's child and adolescent psychiatrists, there's yeah. CL psychiatrists, there's different branches. Um, at some point I'll go through all the branches, but for now we have a forensic psychiatrist here. <laughs> so if you could tell the audience, what is the difference between a forensic psychiatrist from other subspecialties? Yeah, so what separates you? So forensics basically means any interception between mental health and the law. So basically what we're there for is let's say a lawyer has a question where their client um, might have been accused of you know, committing an alleged act. And so they think maybe mental illness had something to do with the commission of that act. What they would do is they would call us and say, hey, can you evaluate this person? See, I have a suspicion that this is going on, but can you evaluate them to see if this is actually going on? And then answering a question related to that alleged act for us to then kind of show the jury and just the court kind of breaking it down in layman's terms so people can understand. So basically we're almost like interpreters of uh, mental health and the law and then answering questions that lawyers may have for us. So some types of questions are um, if someone's competent to stand trial, meaning they have a basic understanding of their crime, their alleged crime and people and things that they'll hear and see in a courtroom and being able to work with their lawyer. And if mental illness is stopping them from doing that, letting the lawyer know and letting the court know. 
Um, there's other things too, like not guilty by reason of insanity. So if someone was possibly insane at the time of the crime, mm. like making that evaluation, that determination based on records, based on interviews, based on talking to the client, things like that. So anything related to mental health in the law, us going in, evaluating and interpreting that for the lawyer to use or for the court to just know. What other things have you learned since you started the forensic or did the forensic psychiatry fellowship? So I would say what I've learned is we have a long way to go. Mm -hmm. um, even with some of my colleagues, not to, you know, they're very competent. They know what sure, they're doing. Yeah. Um, perspective is a major thing. So, for example, like if I'm evaluating someone and one of the major issues is they're not willing to work with their lawyer. When you go into depths about it and say it's like a black male, they might say, I've been in the system. They don't help me in any way. You see what's going on in the news. They don't care about us, so on and so forth. A person who doesn't identify from that same background might not know that, yeah, that's a common thought process in our community. If someone outside that community who doesn't have that insight might say, oh, this person's delusional or they're paranoid. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it a lot of times. So that perspective is needed, especially in this field, because someone might be unnecessarily medicated or um, said said to be incompetent and therefore gets a delay in their case where, where actually it's just this is what's going on. This is how you need to adjust to dealing with this client and building that trust and making sure that trust is built before you move forward with the case. Things like that. Um, I think sometimes that gets swept under the rug. Things get missed essentially because there's just this lack of connection between the the defendant, I'm the defendant and yeah. the lawyer or what or whoever else is working with exactly. them. Exactly. And I would say like the lawyers have the best um, um, thought in mind because they want to do what's best for the client. Mm -hmm. They do. And sometimes they just want to come in, say hellos, and let's get hit the ground running. Let's sometimes, keep moving. Let's do yeah, this. Exactly. But sometimes you need to address that client and be like, hey, this is who I am. I know I might appear to be the enemy, but let's get on the same page. Tell me about why you feel that you wouldn't be able to work with me. Mm -hmm. And then bring up that history, kind of work through that kind of wall, and then show that you're on their side and will have their best interests in mind and keep them actively engaged in the whole process instead of just saying, I think this is what's best for you, this is what we're gonna do, or just jumping right into it without building that trust. I think go that goes a long way, and a lot of lawyers do do that. But us as forensic professionals should advocate for that, especially when we see it in our evaluation process. So it's not just schizophrenia, bipolar disorder. Sometimes it's a person who actually doesn't have any mental illness at all. They just are hesitant to work mm -hmm. with anyone dealing exactly. with the legal system. And the thing is, rightfully so a lot of times. It's like, yeah. I get what you're saying. Like, this, your last charge was, can I cuss on this? Yeah, I don't give a fuck. Your last charge, <laughs> <laughs> your last charge was a bullshit charge and, and yeah. then you did this time for it. I get it. I get this. But right now we're in this situation. We want to make sure we do what's in your best interest. So, if given this situation, would you be able to do this? Yes or no? If the answer is no, then it's like, oh man, then we really gotta delve into this. If did you get past the point of no return? If so, like maybe we can advocate for having this type of lawyer see you, so on and so forth. In a perfect world, we wish that could happen. Sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. So it's all about it's individualized. We have to work with each specific client and give like our kind of detailed roadmap to see how we can help the lawyer kind of work with the client if mental illness isn't the predominating factor, right, um, making them possibly incompetent to stand trial. What are some positives that you can that you can attest to since you started working mm -hmm. in this field? What I can honestly say is Los Angeles County does its diligence, uh, due diligence in helping to get people who need um, access to mental health care 
who are incarcerated. What I mean by that is lawyers are now more attuned in saying, hey, let's not move forward with this case. Let's bring them to the mental health court. Let's get them evaluated to even see. Mm. Sometimes when I'm seeing clients, it's like, why were they sent here? Clearly you want to delay. Or sometimes it's like, I get why you're sending them here, but they, this isn't appropriate. This is what they should do. And then a lot of times it's like, oh, thank God they came here. Yeah. Now we can get them the treatment they need. When you say delay, what do you what do you mean? So sometimes it's like a person might be, um, I would say kind of like uh, misanthropic, kind of like cantankerous. Oh, and okay. then okay. Yeah. and then there's like, oh, I can't work with them. They got to be incompetent. Let's send them to the court. Got it. Okay. Um, to kind of show them, hey, this is the route you could possibly go down and so on and so forth. And it's, it's not really seen as like disciplinary, but it's more of like, I don't know, I can't deal with them. So it has to be something else done with it. Or let's just get a formal report out there to say that they're incompetent. So we can use that to kind of help with their case. Or okay. sometimes it's just like, let's send them here because I don't know. And send them right back. I'm unsure. I need you to help me tease this out. Yeah. I agree with you on that, that I think Los Angeles does do its best to actually give as many resources as possible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we are always in contact with people around the country and um, they don't always have as, as many resources yep. um, as Los Angeles County does. So that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'd agree with that. What are some things that could be improved upon? I really think that more people need to go into this profession. Um, there's... You know, I can get, I get calls almost like every other day as far as like we need someone to be seen, need someone to be seen. And the thing is, I do this part time. So if I did mm. this full time, I would have more time to dedicate to it. But unfortunately, I don't. So we need more people to go into this field. Secondly, we need more people to kind of just be aware of mental illness. I would say um, what I mean by that is kind of taking a step back, not taking things so personally and just realizing, you know, Think about this person's upbringing. Think about their circumstances, think, especially now during COVID. Like a lot of times it could be due to just not being able to get into the clinic because now it's telework. Okay, now my clinic is now telework clinic and yeah. I might not have a phone and I might not have the transportation. I might. So it's like you got to keep all these things in mind. And then when the alleged acts are committed, it's like, okay, now does that seem fair to just throw someone in jail? With, and it's clearly because they didn't have their meds or clearly because they didn't have these other like it's it doesn't seem just. I, I know what you're I know what you're referring to there. Yeah, we did training at the same location, same yeah. patient population. We saw this all the time where a patient it wasn't that they didn't want to engage in treatment. They just mm -hmm. didn't have transportation because Los Angeles doesn't have the best public transportation. <laughs> right. Yeah. Even if you did have a car it would take you an hour to get from one place to another. Exactly. Right. Yeah, I think we just all need to be more flexible, including myself. We just all need to be more flexible and meet people where they are and yeah. just know, like, if we knew everyone's specific situation, their specific lifestyle set up, like, and, like, tailoring it to them, I think it'd be more helpful. Um, and just all the ancillary services, case managers, social workers, um, housing, all, all these things that in actuality would reduce a lot of crime, reduce a lot of incarcer incarcerations, hospitalizations, less burden on these systems. Mm -hmm. If we just had stable housing, stable place to get food, you know, the things that as Americans we promise people, but we don't actually carry it out because it's where society, that's a whole different conversation, but yeah, yeah. It's, cool. <laughs> that's, it's going down the rabbit hole. Yeah. I don't know if we want to do that, but um. Yeah, we just need a lot more money towards these services and a lot of uh, easier access and easier navigation through these services for our clients. So what diagnoses do you typically see? Main ones I see are schizophrenia. Um, I see some bipolar. 
I see some depression and I see a lot of personality disorder, specifically borderline personality disorder, antisocial personality disorder. Mm. What I do see, but often goes missed is post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and it manifests in other ways. Um, but those are the main ones I see. Yeah. PTSD is one of those diagnoses that I think is just getting missed yeah. across the board, especially with your patient population. What do you all do for that, for, for all these diagnoses? Are you able to actually treat or do you diagnose? And So it just depends. Um, when I, in my part-time practice, I'm yeah. just diagnosing and just helpful for the court situation. So if someone's incompetent, I recommend treatment and saying, you know, a use of an antipsychotic or a use of a mood stabilizer um, is needed for this person. I'm not giving specific treatment doses, things like that. I'm just giving the recommendation. And then once they get into the jail-based competency restoration program or going to a state hospital for treatment, then they see and evaluate the client again and they do their own treatment. So I'm not really treating. I'm just providing recommendations. One of the questions that I had in terms of, uh, well, people who get jailed, in and out, yeah. don't have bail. There was a proposition, which, oh, which one was that, 25? 25? Mm -hmm. But could you explain what Proposition 25? What Prop, yeah, Prop so 25 basically, um, in simple terms, right now we live in a cash bail system that based on whatever crime, alleged crime you commit, you can potentially get out early. Um, when I say early, like get out of jail, awaiting trial, and you have to pay a certain amount, um, usually 10% of the bail amount. Mm -hmm. Usually more severe the crime, the higher the bail. So they wanted to get rid of that system because a lot of people who were stuck in these jails didn't have the money for bail. So they're just waiting and waiting for their trial to happen, their case to happen, and it's unfair to them. Whereas someone who had the means could just get out. So they want to replace the cash bail system with like a risk assessment, meaning low, medium, or high. And they base it like on the crime, they base it on your past offenses, things like that, some arbitrary system that they really didn't define in the proposition. But basically, if you are low risk, They'll let you out high risk. They keep you in medium. It's operator dependent. So whatever the judge wanted to do, keeping you in or letting you out. In theory, it sounds good, but I was personally conflicted with it because then more biases come in based on the judge. If mm. Maybe they might not have it written down in the criteria, but it's like, oh, black men are incarcerated more than whites. Again, that's stigma. Since this person's a black man here in front of me, I'm going to make them a little higher risk compared to maybe this white man hmm. who's a lower risk because they're in jail less. Things like that. So it's that's just a possibility. My you know, I got you. As a possibility that could have happened. Exactly. Since there wasn't any really set criteria for these risk assessments, like what risk assessment are we using? What comes into play? What are you excluding? What are you including in it? I don't know. It could just, it's operator dependent. It yeah. could depend on the judge. It could depend on the court that they're in. The, the issues with this is what I, w I remember from from residency. And I think Dr. Chamberlain was one of the people who told me about this with the, the money uh, with bail. Some people, they can't afford the bail, obviously. So they just sit there for months. Mm -hmm. Does that does that happen? Is 100%. that something, am I remembering that properly? 100 percent. 100 percent. Months. Months. And they might not even see their lawyer. Well, I'm not saying they won't see their lawyer, but they might call their lawyer from time to time. But lawyers are busy. The public defenders, especially. Yeah. Hundreds of cases overworked overburdened and I feel for them too because they want to do what's best for their clients and then their clients are like no one's calling me coming to visit me things like this even worse with COVID because they're not allowing visitation in any any case yeah just teleconferencing but all that takes its toll takes an effect and now I can honestly say like the silver lining to that is jails are starting to get empty they're trying to get more people out of jail so they're trying to get like people with like basic misdemeanor charges, trying to get those things dropped and things like that. So they're working on it. But again, I don't 
I'm a more of a realist. I won't say I'm a cynic. I don't really think it's going well right now. You wouldn't call yourself an optimist. You wouldn't call yourself yeah. a pessimist. You're, you know, the glass yeah. isn't half empty or half full. It's just a glass of water. Exactly. Oh, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that's Prop 25. Are there any other ones that uh, either were in the past, uh, the election, uh, or coming up that we need to be on the lookout for? Um, let me see. Because I'm I know, I know what they did. Um, passing in, I want to say it was Oregon mm -hmm. about legalizing all drugs. Mm -hmm. That might come down the pipeline here, especially being such a liberal like kind of ahead of the curve state I that we are. I would be surprised if it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> like, I would be very surprised if it didn't. So that that's interesting. I get it. And I think part of me, I would say most of me would say, yes, I'm for that. Yeah. Especially if we can get treatment for individuals who need it and getting more money just in substance use rehabilitation. I would love that if that comes with that. Um, what I don't like too is meth is a hell of a drug and we've seen it personally and just if we legalize it and just let it run amok um without any legal ramifications from it at least in the small amounts i think that's not a good deterrent for yeah. it so i'm conflicted with that and i think that will come down the line here especially since it's legal now in oregon just so. speaking more on that my past two guests um i had um woman in here who was talking about human trafficking we talked about mm -hmm. legalization of um we'll say sex workers. She, she told me not to use the term prostitute. So I, <laughs> legalization of that. And I was talking about legalization of, uh, of cannabis with uh, Dr. Fong. Mm -hmm. And I think all of them, including myself and now you, I mean, we're saying the same thing. It, it makes sense. There's reasons why you do it, but we also need to have some protections 100%. Uh, for the people that will be engaging in whatever activities that are now legalized. Yes. I don't think people have actually seen someone high on meth. Floridly psychotic. Yeah, it's scary. Because the thing is, you can tell just by looking at them that they, they just lost control. Complete yeah. control of their own body, their actions, their emotions. And you can't really even talk to someone acutely intoxicated on meth. All you can really do is help them relax. All you can really do is medicate them in that moment. Mm -hmm. Put them in an environment where they won't hurt themselves or hurt other people. That's all you can do. And then once they're out of that, then talking can happen. So if we get a lot more of that, that's what scares me. I did some part of my training on the East Coast mm -hmm. in Maryland. And over there, it's opiates. Over here, it's yeah. it's it's meth more. And uh, some of them have mentioned to me that the one of the one of the things about opiates to consider is the fact that when someone's on opiates, they don't really bother other people when they're high. Meth is something different. They yeah. run out <laughs> in the streets naked. They attack people. PCP too. They get mm -hmm. they get very aggressive. Hundred uh, percent. Again, all those things are why I'm also conflicted about it. <laughs> Recently. We touched on this briefly, uh, mental health in, uh, in minority communities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you think there's been a change um, as to the opinion or the, uh, the approach to how we manage mental health in minority communities? I think the change is coming, and I think the major change is awareness now. Mm -hmm. um, I actually did a talk um, to a group of, I want to say about 20 to 30 Georgia pastors, um, on behalf of this commission. And basically my, my talk was about addressing mental health in the church because back in the days and even now, church is the form of major support system for the black community. Like right. that's where we go for our counsel. That's where we go for fellowship. That's where we go a lot of times to take our, you know, take our problems, you know, prayer is what we do. Mm -hmm. So in this talk, I basically said, this is common mental illnesses that you can see and just the importance of addressing it not only with prayer, because I use that, I say be spiritual, you know, that's part of the treatment, 
but going just to see the doctor, going to get a formal evaluation, going to get medicated if needed, because worse things could happen if we let this fester and then don't treat it adequately. And the questions I got and just the, you know, the, the thanks that I received from these individuals was like amazing. Yeah. Because it's like, we didn't know this stuff. You know, we had some idea, but they really didn't know. They didn't know what depression looked look like they didn't know schizophrenia was and like you could see the light bulbs coming off oh yeah sister so-and-so yeah. did have something that looked so like i'm confident in things like that and that's the wave of where we're going as a society i love it we got into psychiatry at the perfect time because yeah. now people are now addressing mental illness mm -hmm. and it's us it's our job to be the ambassadors especially for our communities um i feel it's a duty for me to like do that and to be keep people informed and helping in ways that i can I think it's hard for us sometimes to, to say to people, how did you not know this? How did you not know yeah. what depression looked like? Because we deal with it all the time. 100%. So uh, you're a religious man. Yes, sir. <clears throat> how does religion and your practice of medicine, how does that intertwine? How does that, inter how does that mix? If I know a patient is religious, I would say, please continue to do that. Mm -hmm. That is social, biopsychosocial. That's part of the social aspect we want to use to help improve your element of mental illness that you have right now. So I would push for it. If a person isn't religious, I might suggest it, but I'm not gonna push it on them. And if a person's very anti-religion, I might figure out why that is and see if maybe that's part of the problem, mm -hmm. but I'm not gonna push too hard and I'm not gonna say, well, you shouldn't be anti-religion, you should be religion. Like, I use it based on the situation. It's kind of touch and go, very individualistic. I found religion to be, especially for what we do, it's fantastic. Yeah. It's just a great support system. Yeah. You know, I'm not religious myself, but I, I have plenty of friends that are religious and it's just a great support system. They always have something or someone to rely on. Mm -hmm. It's, it's beautiful. So yeah, I, I agree with you. Just if that's something that they're into, you want to, you want to, you want to highlight that. I mean, that's just a, like, I'm Baptist. So that's the nature of my religion too. Like, um, it's my duty as a Christian to kind of like say, Hey, this is out here. You should try it. It's cool. I like it. It helped me get to where I am. So maybe it could help you. And that's what I try to do day to day, not just in my practice. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're a person that doesn't like it or buy into it, I get it too. Yeah. Teach their own. I wanted to briefly discuss with you because we've had a couple conversations because I've never been to Detroit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the D. Was it 2014 when uh, Flint and uh, yeah. was that was that around the time? Yeah. Have you? Uh, sad, I got on. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> I'm from I'm from Grand Blanc. It's a suburb of Flint. So basically, I was okay. born and raised in Flint. Okay. So I'm a, I'm going to assume you get updates about how things are going out there. Yeah. Um. um so I still have family. My dad lives in Grand Blanc. My my aunt lives in Flint. I still have a lot of friends and mm -hmm. fam that live up there. Um. Still not 100 percent clean. Still needing filtration systems still. Um, I think they just got a lawsuit this past year. Um, settled where like, oh, I forgot how many million, maybe like 60 something million. Mm -hmm. The federal government has to play, pay to the city of Flint and like disperse. Who knows if that's coming out, who knows if appeals or whatever, but that happened this past year. Still nowhere near enough. Yeah. Um, the water's still not clean. It's been since 2014. Six um, years. Six years. I think one person went to jail. Um, and it wasn't the governor who signed off on it, Governor Rick Snyder. Um, still a lot of injustice occurring. And again, it's a community where it's predominantly black. Had this happened in different communities, who knows what the outcome would have been. I know it would have been different. Oh. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this is what happens in America, unfortunately. And 
the water is obviously been contaminated. Yeah. I don't remember with what, but it's contaminated. So basically, just to give you like a quick backstory, growing up, there's a river that goes through Flint called the Flint River. It goes right through downtown. Yeah. My entire childhood, people went to like the banks of the river. There's a place called Riverbank Park right downtown, things like that. I've never seen in my entire life anyone dip a, dip a toe in the Flint River because mm-hmm. it's green. It's, it's been green. green my entire life. It's green. Yes, ever since a kid. We used to get okay. our water from Detroit. So all Grand Blank still does. Um, Flint got their water from Detroit. As a cost-cutting measure in 2014, Governor Snyder signed off. It's like, oh, let's get their water from Flint. Why are we taking it all the way from Detroit? A la Flint water crisis. So they just moved the pipes, and then the pipes eroded and things like that. And it's just terrible. So my whole life, when I lived in Flint, I lived in Flint up until 2005. We still had Detroit water. So it was only since 2014 onward that they've been having the Flint water. Oh, so you you weren't even... Were you in the state at that time? Mm, I left in 2013. I was in Detroit at Wayne State from 2009 to 2013. So when all this information came out, I'm just curious. How did you How did you feel when you found out what was going on? I was devastated. I was devastated. Like my aunt directly like lives in Flint, so like she had to like go to get the water. She had to cook everything with water bottles, showering with water bottles, things like that. Um, The filters and all that stuff. It's it's such BS. It's such BS. And and that's just her. And, like, thank God she's okay and didn't have, like, long-lasting effects. But I can't say the same for other people. I know people who've had suffered brain damage from, like, the lead exposure and all right. the toxic matter, metals and things like that. And Kids who were probably drinking the water. Yeah. And we still haven't seen those effects because, you know, heavy lead exposure as a kid can lead to mental illness within itself. Right. So we're still not going to see the long lasting effects until now. And then that's going to put even more burden on the parents and the caregivers and the hospitals, things like that when they get older. Yeah. So it's, that must've been be tough being away from home when that was going on. Oh, hundred percent. hundred percent. I was just, you know, checking in on my family and then having, they're basically my mouthpiece is like, Hey, how's so-and-so doing? How's this going? Cause my church is in Flint. Mm. So I grew growing up in Flint, going to church every week, like everyone in church is like basically my fam. So like, they're all directly affected by this. So it's just, it's, it's been hell. Yeah. But due to like a lot of awareness around the country, a lot of support has been coming in from around the countries, mm-hmm. especially putting the water crisis on the map. Everyone knows about it. A lot of donations came. Um, University of Michigan Flint has, is a big hub there. So like um, they sent all their nursing students there for training, stuff like that. So they're building up downtown to kind of, make it look nicer and for the students and stuff like that. So things are coming back, but for the residents who were born and raised, like it's still bad, but we're all, we've always been resilient. Yeah. So that's the thing about Michigan in general, Detroit, Flint, bunch of resilient people, family oriented, get through the struggle because that's what we've known. Like that's what we go through. So people are resilient. hundred yeah. percent. People in uh, Michigan, people, the people of new Orleans oh, are resilient. Yeah. 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 And that's not to say that we're impervious to to pain and struggle. That's not to say that. It's just to say that we've we've been given few options in life just in general. So it's like with those options, we still make a way from it. We still find the best of a bad situation. Um, and that's to speak for my people in Flint, people in New Orleans, people everywhere, especially in our communities. Like we've historically been given not as much as others in yeah. this country but we still make away from it. Yeah, I'm so. I'm I'm hopeful. 
Yeah, I really am. I uh, I should not take social media as the barometer for where things are going, but it, it feels like there's support, at least superficially. There feels yeah. like there's support for not just African Americans, but just anybody that's that's uh, going through a tough time. And this is the first time ever. Like I remember so much outpouring towards mental health, and I'm like, cool. Everyone has these words. Where the money at? Where's the money to support us? Yeah, because. If y'all knew the situation about mental health in L.A. County, especially like Mm -hmm. the check should be written like that's we need money in mental health, specifically inpatient mental health, specifically the support services that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. This is needed. It's not something we want. It's something we need. Okay. All right, man. Can I ask you all the questions I had to ask? (laughs) (laughs) How are you doing? How's everything going? I'm good, man. I um, this is the studio. This is dope. The studio is dope, by the way. If y'all can, if he does like a video tour one day, I'm probably not. This is this is the whole tour. <laughs> this is the whole tour. <laughs> this no. is dope. This is dope. All right, we're all finished. All right, thanks for having me. I really appreciate this. I appreciate what you do, especially bringing awareness. Things like this mm-hmm. is part of the solution. So I appreciate you being part of the solution and yeah. just doing your part. Ah!